Well, hello, my friends, and welcome to Hope for Your Heart. This is Pastor Calvin Corbett. I'm so glad that you are joining us today because I'm talking about the subject of unity today and the power of unity. Now, there's an employee bulletin board, and it contained the following memo. It said, in case of a fire, flee this building with the same reckless abandonment that occurs each day at quitting time. Uh, you can't wait to get out of work, right, and get on home. And uh, that is what I have noticed uh, when I'm at the facility that the guys, they want to get out of there as quick as they can. And, and those who work there want to get out of there as quick as they can. And uh, But today, when we look at this matter of unity, uh, we've been looking through the book of Philippians. And we're on Philippians chapter 2. We're going to look at verses 1 through 11. Uh, but they discovered that 64% of U.S. workers enjoy their work a great deal, 29% enjoy it somewhat, well, just 5% don't care for work at all. Uh, so when it comes to work and life balance, only about 50% feel that they are getting things done. In John chapter 7, Jesus says, My prayer is not for them alone. I pray also that they will believe in me through their message and that all of them may be one, Father, just as you are in me, and I am in you, may they also be in us, so that the world may believe that you have sent me. Now that's a powerful passage, isn't it, as we talk about this matter of unity? Uh, maybe the reason why you can't get a whole lot done at work, and maybe why uh, your church is not flourishing the way it is, is because it's lacking unity. Everybody's going in their own direction, uh, going off and doing their own thing. Yeah, the Bible talks about that. Uh, the Bible says that without a purpose, the people perish or, or they cast off restraint. In John chapter 17, uh, Jesus is giving this prayer, and some call this the prayer of unity. Uh, this is really Jesus' prayer in John 17. And he says, I'm going to pray for those who believe the message that you may be in them and they may be one in the Father, just like Jesus and his Father are one. Now, wouldn't that be neat to be part of a powerful entity? part of a church that was completely unified? Well, you know, the root of our disunity, it always stems from one thing. I don't want to be part of a unified direction because I am selfish. You know, when you think about selfishness, it's, it's always based upon two things. Uh, number one would be faulty beliefs. This external attack that is brought to us through wrong theology. And so Paul addresses this. He says in Philippians chapter 3, he says, My brothers and sisters, rejoice in the Lord. It's no trouble that I write the same things to you again, and it's to safeguard you. He says, okay, I want to gather you all around for your own protection. I don't want you scattered. I want you together for your own protection. And then he says, verse number 2, Philippians chapter 3, watch out for those dogs. Who's he talking about? The evildoers? those mutilators of the flesh. For if it were we who are the circumcision, we who serve God by spirit, who boast in Christ, and who put no confidence in the flesh. So there's this schism coming within the church, and that schism is based upon those who would put confidence in their own flesh. Paul says they were mutilators of the flesh. In other words, they were saying, if you want to be part of us, you got to be circumcised. If you want to be part of the inner circle, you've got to be circumcised. They were creating an intentional division within the church. In Galatians chapter 5, verse 16, it says, you know, if you keep on biting 
If you keep on devouring each other, watch out, or you'll be destroyed by each other. Here we discover that those dogs, right, those evildoers, they were coming in, biting and devouring each other. They were actually fighting with each other. And James 3.16 says, where there is jealousy and selfishness, there's going to be all kind of disorder and every kind of evil. So faulty beliefs based on selfishness will cause disunity. But there's a second thing that we discover. If your theology is wrong, so will be your thoughts about others. Now, how I view God is how I will view others. When your view of God is wrong, your view of people will also be wrong. You see, God is the center of our theology. He's not an afterthought. He's not below us. He is above us. We are unified around him just as his son is unified with him. So we ought to be unified with one another when Christ is the center. There's something else that will cause disunity when we're hurting. Faulty beliefs based on bad theology, wrong thinking, but then hurting believers. This would be more of an inward attack through wrong thinking, where faulty beliefs is an outward attack through wrong theology. We're not thinking right about who God is because we're listening to teaching from the outside that is contrary to God's word. But here we see something else happens that will create disunity, this inward attack through hurting believers. Philippians 4, beginning at verse number 1. Therefore, my brothers and sisters, you whom I love, you who I long for, my joy, my crown. Paul says, stand firm in the Lord in this way, dear friends. And then he begs them. He says, I beg with you, Yodia, I beg with you, Syntyche, that you be of the same mind in the Lord. Yes, I and I ask you, my true companions, Help these women, since they have contended at my side in the cause of the gospel, along with Clement and along with the rest of my co-workers, whose name are in the book of life. And now here we have bona fide believers who have somehow become hurt. There's some contention. Paul doesn't explain what that contention is, but he's begging Yodia and he's begging Syntyche that they be of the same mind in the Lord. And he's asking the church to come alongside for the cause of the gospel to get this resolved. Now, as we look at the name Yodia, it's a Greek name. It means one who has a sweet sense. And then Syntyche, also another Greek name, means one who is fortunate, literally one who has a fate. So these two people that are mentioned here in the New Testament, they are female members of the church in Philippi. And according to this text, Philippians chapter 4, Verses 1 through 3, they're involved in some kind of a disagreement. The author of this letter, Paul of Tarsus, is writing to give a general revelation of his misgivings that there's internal disunity and is seriously undermining the church. So he begs these women, he beseeches them to be agreeing in the Lord. Now, the reason this is so important is because a unified mind agreeing in the Lord leads to a unified body. James put it this way in James chapter 1. He says, but when you ask, you must believe and you must not doubt because the one who doubts is like that wave of the sea blown and tossed by the wind. That person is not going to expect to receive anything from the Lord because they're dual-minded, double-minded, and unstable in all their ways. So a unified mind leads to a unified body, 
a double-minded mind, a dual-minded person, has an unstable life. So if you're looking at your life and says, why is my life so unstable? The problem is not with your life. The problem is with your mind. Your mind is being pulled in two different directions. You must have a unified mind. And so Paul says, agree in the Lord. I love how I put that. He didn't say agree with each other. He said, agree in the Lord. What does the Lord say about this? We will become unified when we get unified our minds with the mind of Christ. There's something else that we see here is that your body will eventually go where your mind lives. If your mind is disunified, then your body is going to follow your mind. When I think about this, the root of all disunity stems from selfishness. The root of all unity stems from unselfishness. And that is based upon the mind of Christ. So look how Paul addresses it. Philippians chapter 2, verses 1 through 4, Paul says, Therefore, if you have any agreement or encouragement from being united in Christ, if any comfort from his love, if any common sharing in his spirit, if any tenderness and compassion, then make my joy complete by being like-minded, like-minded with Christ. When I'm like-minded with Christ, my brothers and sisters are like-minded in Christ. I have the same love, being in one spirit and of one mind. I'm not doing anything out of selfish ambition or vain conceit. Rather, in humility, I value others above myself, not looking just to my own interest, but also to the interest of others. You see, the big fight in the church ought not to be, they didn't do what I wanted them to do. The big fight is, no, I don't want you to do what I want. I want to do what you want. <laughs> it wouldn't that be amazing uh, if you had a church like that, constantly saying, we are always deferring to what other people want to do, and we have set aside our own selfish desires for the good of the body of Christ. And we ask the question, what is best for God to be glorified? You know, when you think about political opponents, in 2018, at the end of their debate, Two candidates in a Vermont State House seat asked the moderator for a a few extra minutes, not to make last-second appeals for votes, but rather to make a little music. Lucy Rogers, the Democrat, grabbed her cello, while Zach Mayo, the Republican, picked up his guitar. They started performing Society by Eddie Vedder. And much to the surprise of everyone in the audience, it strikes a chord. Mayo told CBS News to say the world that this is a better way. Rogers and Mayo agreed early on while campaigning in their small little county that they were going to be civil, they were going to treat each other with respect throughout the entire race. When Rogers asked Mayo if he wanted to play a song with her, he thought it was a fantastic idea, as did the voters who attended the debate. I want you to know, you don't have to see eye to eye with everybody to walk hand in hand. As you think about the habit of a unified church, what does it look like? What are the habits of a church that is unified? Well, let me just give you a few things that I think will help you, because I trust that everyone listening to me today is part of a good Bible-believing church, and you see these habits in your life, and you see these habits in your church. Well, habit number one is positive thoughts of others without criticism. Positive thoughts without criticism. And you know, when you think about criticism, it's so easy to criticize other people. Words that Jesus never said, right? 
Jesus never said, I've really done a lot for you and you don't appreciate it. You know, the winner glorifies the good and the whiner majors in the mediocre. Winners think differently. Winners process different from other people. As part of their normal moment-to-moment stream of consciousness, winners constantly think in terms of, I can and I will. Losers, on the other hand, they concentrate on all of their waking thoughts. They concentrate on what they should have done, what they could have done, would have done. They concentrate on what they can't do, and they, they become disappointed, and they become discouraged. Paul said, in your relationships with one another, had the same mindset as Christ, who, being in the very nature of God, did not consider equality with God as something to be used for his own advantage. Jesus was always putting others first. We ought to always be putting others first. Positive thoughts of others without criticizing. In John chapter 13, Jesus gives us a new commandment. And he says, a new commandment I give unto you, and here it is, love each other. Well, how do I do that? Well, Jesus, in essence, saying, well, I'm glad you asked. You love others just as I have loved you. That's how you love each other. Your love for one another will prove to the world that you are my disciples. So the habit of positive thoughts of others without criticism. And then we get on to verse number seven of Philippians chapter two, and we discover there's a second thing that we see in a unified church, and that is faithful actions of service without complaining. Now, they're not doing their service and griping and complaining the whole time. They are doing their service, their ministry unto the Lord without complaining. Mark Twain said this, don't complain and talk about all your problems. 80% of the people don't care, and the other 20% think you deserve them. And so don't do things complaining. Just serve the Lord with joy. You see, those who do the least complaining, uh, they are the ones that do the most effective work. Those who do the least complain the most oftentimes, but those who do the most complain the least. You'll find that true over and over and over again. So if you find yourself complaining a lot, what you're really saying is, I'm not doing a whole lot, and I'm really disappointed. As you look at what Christ did when he was here on this earth, he made himself nothing. Now, this is what Paul talks about in Philippians chapter 2, is a fascinating chapter. It's actually called the Kenosis of Christ. It is a chapter where Jesus is emptying himself of his godly attributes, setting them aside. He's still God. He's 100% God, 100% man. But he's taking on the nature of, the, of a servant and being made in the likeness of man. So he's 100% man, 100% God. And he tells us to do everything without complaining. One guy told me he had the gift of grumbling. I said, well, you ought to bury that gift. God doesn't give you the gift of grumbling. That's what the enemy does. He wants us to grumble. You see, when we complain, we're really grumbling against the Lord. In number 1611, Moses says, you know, you're grumbling against the Lord that, that, that has brought you and, and has banned us all together. That's who you're grumbling against. You know, a monk joined a monastery and 
he took a vow of silence. After the first ten years, his superior called him in and asked, Do you have anything to say? The monk had two words. Food, bad. After another ten years, the monk again had the opportunity to voice his thoughts, and he said, Bed, hard. After another ten years went by, and again he was called in before his superior, when he was asked if he had anything to say, he responded, I quit. To which the monk responded, It doesn't surprise me a bit. You've done nothing but complain ever since you've gotten here. You know, in an unsanctified moment, I said this to a disgruntled church member, and I gave that same illustration, and and ironically enough, uh, they left. And ironically enough, nobody even noticed they left. You see, if you want a unified church, you've got to have positive thoughts one toward another. You've got to be faithful in, in actions. And number three, you got to be humble, humbly giving of sacrifices without comparing. You see, we don't take up the cross daily to crucify Christ again, but we take up the cross daily to crucify our selfishness. We don't do this to compare ourselves with others, because if we compare ourselves with others, we will either become prideful or discouraged, and neither is from God. In Philippians 2.8, it says, Jesus, and I'm adding that Jesus, says he, we know it's talking about Jesus, being found in the appearance as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to death, even death on a cross. You know, the Victoria Cross in Canada is the highest military honor. I guess it's very similar to the Medal of Honor that we have in the United States. These medals are awarded for personal acts of valor, for those who go above and beyond the call of duty. Of the thousands awarded to date, more citations have been bestowed for falling on grenades to save comrades than on any other single act. The first Victoria Cross of World War II was awarded to a company sergeant, Major John Robert Osborne. The sergeant major and and his men were cut off from his battalion, and they were under heavy attack. When the enemy came very close and close enough to see them, the Canadian soldiers were were subjected, and and they were were barraged, and they were barricaded, and all of a sudden, uh, they were they were being barraged with grenades. Several times, Osborne protected his men by, by picking up these live grenades and throwing them back behind enemy lines. But eventually, one of them fell in just the wrong position that he couldn't pick it up in time. With only a split second to decide, Osborne shouted a warning, and he threw himself on top of that grenade. It exploded, killing him instantly. The rest of the company, however, survived that battle because of Osborne's selfless, other-centeredness. I love stories like this of of bravery and and of self-sacrifice. They give me hope for humanity and offer us all a glimpse of God's goodness reflected in His image bearers. But you know, no matter how beautiful that heroic act may be, through Jesus Christ, 
we see an even greater love at the very heart of God. You see, soldiers who fall on grenades do so out of love for their friends. And when they're on that battlefield, they're trying to kill their enemies. Jesus died for us. His friends, no, not his friends. We were his enemies. He died for us when we were his enemy. And he's died for every other enemy in between. You see, our sacrifice should be made to encourage, not compare, not to condone, or condemn rather. In 2 Corinthians chapter 10, Paul says, we wouldn't put ourselves in the same class with or compare ourselves to those who are bold enough to make their own recommendations. Certainly, when they measure themselves by themselves and compare themselves to themselves, they show how foolish they are. How can we brag about things that no one can evaluate? Instead, we will only brag about what God has given us to do. Coming to the city of Corinth where you live. You see, Paul says, we have a mission to do. We've come to Corinth to establish and to, and to grow up and, and, and to allow this church to become disciples of Christ. We've come here not to brag, not to evaluate ourselves or compare ourselves with you. We've come carrying out a very mission that God has given to us. Our sacrifice is made to encourage, not to condemn you, not to make you feel guilty, not even to compare ourselves to you. We sacrifice to encourage you. You know, this is very encouraging. There's power in this encouragement. You know, the students at Sandy's High School were, were badly shaken by the news that a classmate had killed himself. Uh, the suicide note said, It's hard to live when nobody cares if you die. Glenn, who was a teacher there, realized that this was a teachable moment about the importance of making people feel valued. He asked the class to imagine they were about to die and to write a note telling someone how and why you appreciate them. Sandy, who had a rocky relationship with her mother, decided to write to her mom. Her letter said, Mom, we've had some rough times, and I haven't always been a very good daughter, but I know I'm lucky to have you in my life. You are the best person I've ever known. And even when I disagree with you, I never doubt that you love me and you want what's best for me. Thanks for not giving up on me. When her mom read that note, she cried and hugged Sandy tightly, but said little. You see, the next morning, Sandy found a note on her mirror. Dearest Sandy, I want you to know being your mother is by far the most important thing in my life. Until I got your note, I thought I had lost your love and your respect. I felt like such a failure as a mom. I intended to end it all last night. Your note saved my life. Who is waiting to get a note from you? Monday night, I was extremely tired and I came home from my small group. And it was a very busy day and I was just exhausted. And as I went out to the front to check my mail and brought it back in the house and going through the mail and, and, and a card caught my note by one of our church members. And it was just a little card to, with a brief note in the inside that encouraged me. Uh, this member just said, hey, pastor, I know that you do so much for our congregation. And many people may not even realize all that you do. 
but I want you to know that I notice all that you do. I greatly love and appreciate you. Just a simple little card on a simple little note. You know, think about churches that are unified. They have positive thoughts. They have faithful actions. They humbly give of sacrifices without comparing. And then lastly, they sincerely glorify Christ. Yeah, they give Christ all the glory. Now, they're not conceited about that. They give God the glory. Paul said to the Corinthian believers in 2 Corinthians chapter 10, verse number 7, But if you're going to glory, let's glory in the Lord. 1 Corinthians 4, 7 says, Gives us this reason why we should glory in the Lord because of all he's done for us. John Piper said, God is most glorified in us when we are most satisfied in him. Oh, if you find your satisfaction in Christ, you are showing glory to God. You are bringing unity within your church. It is a sincerity of heart as you glorify Christ, thanking him for what he's done. Now, we don't do this for self-glory. We do it because he loves us and how deeply he cares for us. So thank you for listening today. I would love to pray for you today. Shoot me a text at 252-267-2365. If you'd like to hear this broadcast again, you can have a free download at buzzsprout.com backslash 1890557, or you can listen on Amazon, Spotify, Google Podcast, and Apple Podcast. Hickory Ridge Community Church is located at 3320 Battlefield Boulevard South in Chesapeake, Virginia. Sunday service times are 9 a.m. and 10.30 a.m. We'd love for you to join us. For more information, go to hrcc7.org. And remember, no matter what you're going through, in Jesus Christ there is always hope for your heart.